Uh, hello everyone and welcome to yet another episode of the Daily Medieval Podcast. Today I'm joined by another guest uh, for an interview today um, and this is a really fascinating person with a really really interesting career. Uh, I'm joined by an award-winning archaeologist with decades of experience in the field. He has led major projects at sites including the Tower of London, Palace of Westminster and Southwark Cathedral to name just a few. But here today he's talking about castles, the wonderful world of castles. Um, and so with that in mind I'd love to welcome building archaeologist and architectural historian Dr James Wright. Thank you Hello. for joining me. Hello, thanks for having me on, Luke. It's a real pleasure and a privilege to be here. No worries, thank you. So I guess, um, really, like with um, with most of my interviews, I start off by kind of going into really what led you to kind of being where you are now. Where did your love for history and specifically castles and archaeology begin? So I quite like that question and also um, I, I slightly... Um, daunted by it because I have a fairly non-standard career um, mm. development in that most of my career decisions have been made as a result of sitting in the right pub on the right evening with the right person rather than having some sort of you know very developed career strategy which I can explain which will be completely yeah. uh, understandable to any other budding archaeologist or historian. Um, essentially my interest in history started uh, as a very, very, very young kid, probably about the age of five or six. And at that time, um, uh, we only had, I think, three, possibly four TV channels. So like, I can't remember if it was before Channel 4 started even. But we, um, we used to have um, films on at six o'clock. On a, on, a, on, a, on a weekday on BBC Two. And they were always old films made during the 40s and 50s. And I remember seeing this war film and just be completely blown away by what an amazing story it was. I can't remember what the title of the film was at all, but just being so enraptured by it. And then my mum sort of saying, well, you do know that both your granddads actually fought during the Second World War. And me just, I couldn't believe that this was real. Something so staggeringly adventurous was real. And I eventually talked to both my granddads. Their, their stories were quite different. Uh, one granddad had, had basically fought everywhere he'd, he'd been throughout the north africa campaign he'd come in through sicily he'd gone up through um uh, italy and then into germany from that direction uh, and he was one of the li liberators of bergen belsen so he had quite a story mm. which he didn't really tell you because he was so messed up by what he'd seen and he'd had some really staggeringly awful experiences that he'd tell you where he'd been but he wouldn't tell you what had happened yeah. whereas my other grandfather he, he he came into the war quite late he was a bit younger he was a truck driver um he came in after the d-day landings so he, he didn't have to to go through the, the terrible traumas there but on the the way up to to germany he got blown up um, uh, in his truck so he had sort of bits of shrapnel in his body and the like but he was invalid invalided out came back and then he was um, there after the war had finished in Berlin and he couldn't wait to tell you all of the stories mm. but he'd had a, a, even though he was wounded he'd had a slightly less traumatic war so his stories were much more um, sort of colourful um, so it was those two men really telling me these stories of something from the past which was true and uh, that got me interested in history. And that led me to sort of develop this interest um, by going to the local library and getting all the 
books out in the kids department and then moving on to the to the adult section and getting books out which I was far too young to read but <laughs> devouring them you know often and get just engaging with the pictures but mm. you know developing this interest and the medieval period was always the one that drew me um eventually going through school and college and, and studying history uh coming to the conclusion that I would like to study um uh, archaeology at university and then eventually coming to Nottingham which is where I still live in the mid-90s and studying archaeology there with people like Lloyd Lang and people like Geoffrey May and especially Philip Dixon who was uh, one of the people who invented the discipline of buildings archaeology he was right there at the, at, the, at the crux of the matter really early on and he gave me this real love for the historic built environment and ultimately I decided during my third year that I wanted to become Phil Dixon and more or less have managed that. I'm not like he was in post at a university, but we've worked on many of the same buildings. Uh, we've worked with many of the same people and, and my life has certainly gone down the same route that his has looking at medieval houses, medieval castles and medieval churches. And that's very much the, the trajectory that my career has taken me in. Oh, that's fantastic. I love how, uh, and I find this with so many people in history, that they always, there is this kind of deeply woven connection to kind of people's experiences and kind of specific, potentially sites or kind of essentially a cultural heritage. I mean, my, with my background as well, I also had, I mean, it was a great grandfather who was in the war. He was in the home army uh, in Essex, but then his brother was, uh, fighting and died in the fall of Singapore. So again, it's this kind of cultural history. And I imagine that, I mean, as well with your kind of focus on castles and everything, I mean, how key is cultural heritage and kind of things like the English heritage and national trust to history? So I think there's, there's, a, there's two ways of looking at that. M my own cultural heritage is, is my upbringing mm. and the area where I grew up and the family stories. And as I say, a lot of it, my, my initial interest was obviously the family stories. That is my cultural background, I mm. suppose. Um, I think it was um, Michael Wood, a historian, who said that if you want to understand someone, you need to look at the 20 or 30 years before they were born because that is the context for their existence. So I was, I was growing up in the, um, in the 1970s and 80s. So of course, my cultural background, the, the 20 or 30 years before that is the post-war period. Um, so of course I was talking to people who'd, uh, who'd fought in that war, but also in terms of the locational cultural background, I grew up in Staffordshire, in the heart of the Midlands, and I grew up in a fairly, um, uh, one might say insignificant small town where not a lot happened mm. however enough happened to essentially spark my imagination mm. and my enthusiasm for this subject so I got really interested in the fact that there was a, a, a completely lost priory in mm. my town which is a place called Stone near Stafford um, there was a lost priory and that really fired my imagination could we find evidence for it um, but further afield um, and literally in the fields behind my dad's pub there was lots of earthworks on a place called Stonefields now you know you can read lots about them um, in various journals uh, mm. uh, an antiquarian thought that all of these earthworks were for druids to line up to watch <laughs> their ceremonies um, latterly I came to understand that actually it's medieval ridge and furrow ploughing with strip shits. 
But on the top of these earthworks, there was um, uh, a, a group of sort of amorphous earthworks themselves. And there was rumours that that's where the Duke of Cumberland's forces pulled up to, to face off against um, Bonnie Prince Charlie in 1745. Now, Cumberland's troops did array themselves on Stonefield, but the earthworks are actually post-medieval gravel extraction. But it was these earthworks that helped to get me inspired to look at the physical properties. Mm. So again, that's part of my cultural background. And then you mentioned things like the, the National Trust and English Heritage and, and of course, Historic England, and, and they're like Cadu. Uh, historic Scotland uh, as well and um, they were really important in my upbringing and again my cultural background because from quite an early age I became quite gobby I became quite forthright and I wanted to go and see the places that I've been reading about in the books so those are the sorts of sites which they owned, um, the, the National Trust, whether it be places like Shrubborough Hall, whether it be Corfe Castle uh, or, or um, Battersley Clinton um, from the National Trust, from English heritage, it might be places like Kenilworth Castle um, or Dover Castle or, um, uh, you know, family holidays, going and looking at these sites and actually understanding that this is the physical reality of what I was reading about. And I've always been really fascinated by those links between the written word mm. and the physical properties. Now, sometimes they don't always link up. Sometimes the written word is very different to the physical archeology span that we, that we go and find, because obviously the written word can be spun. There is bias, there is outright lies quite often. Um, but when you can get the two to marry up, when you can read that there was the building accounts for the construction of a new tower, in such and such a year and, and these events happened in this tower and then you can actually go and physically look at that building so that's the kind of the way that um the buildings the structures the earthworks the monuments tie in with what i've been reading and i think that's the importance that um that's really what sets the synapses flying uh, and, and firing really is, is is being able to understand the physicality the materiality of something that you're reading about uh, and that makes it so much more alive and relevant for me mm. no definitely and um i completely agree i mean i've dabbled a little bit in archaeology and it is fantastic to be able to see kind of physical items that are not just words in a book um mm. definitely but you started your um journey into archaeology almost 26 years ago i think how has technology shaped your career and changed archaeology in that time yes so i went to university in 1996 mm. if that helps give some context and um technology has always been there within archaeology uh the technologies that archaeologists use tends to be sort of borrowed science mm. Uh, if you get what I'm saying, things like carbon dating, it's something that somebody remembered from school days science, that kind of thing. That's how things you know, we don't tend to have groundbreaking scientific methods which have just been invented for archaeology. It's sort yeah. of applied science. Now, I'm not really a scientific archaeologist. My mind doesn't work that way. I'm not great at science. I'm not good at maths. I'm much more of a creative thinker. Mm. Um, but I certainly have used technology throughout my career and I've seen technology advance throughout the sort of quarter century that I've been involved. Um, so, for example, when I was handing in my undergraduate essays, we were still handwriting them for the first couple of years. You know, it was yeah. just the use of a word processor or mm. eventually a laptop was a new thing. You know, it wasn't a requirement at the beginning. 
things like uh, when I was first taking photographs on site, it was with a film 35 millimeter black and white um, uh, exposure. So I learned how to develop my own images in the departmental darkroom, which is something I really enjoyed doing. I found it absolutely absorbing. Um, but within a couple of years, everything had gone to digital. So I've, I've seen, you know, quite, I sound like a really old person now. I'm not. I'm only 44. But I have seen a, a great changeover. There's also how we can access documents and reports. Previously, it was all, if it was an archaeological report, it was a spiral-bound A4 uh, affair and you would leaf through it and in, 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 in a library or an archive and something like that. Nowadays, of course, we have things like Oasis and also the archaeology data service, which actually puts these things online for us P as PDFs. Mm -hmm. So we have the availability at our fingertips of the world's resources in archaeological thought, whereas previously to find the new research was quite difficult because again it was a physical thing so just things like that have really come on um i suppose when i was just before i was starting in archaeology we were starting to hear about geophysics the, the looking beneath the, the soil using various techniques and that had been emerging throughout i think the late 80s through the 90s etc etc but that again has come on leaps and bounds with new techniques and and, and closer um uh, scanning technologies so Photogrammetry, for example, being able to get 3D models or be able to draw from photographs. These are all things which have come on during my mm. time. Now, I don't profess to be an expert in any of those things. I can, I can use certain packages. Probably the one that I use the most is AutoCAD, which is a, a drawing um, package, which was actually invented, I think, in the very late 60s. Um, and I seem to remember doing a computing in archaeology course in about 1998 or something like that and having a go for an afternoon on, on AutoCAD. But now I use it most weeks to, to produce um, uh, principally 2D elevation drawings, sectional elevations and phase plans, which are essential to being a buildings archaeologist. So, you know, there's lots of technology. We use it. We uh, Other archaeologists use it in much more different ways to myself. But mm. yeah, we, we, we have all this available to us and really in the mid 90s not a lot of this was available it was we were still drawing in in, in ink for example when i did my first architectural drawing at the parish church whole parish church which i surveyed on my own um I drew that up in pen and ink on a, on a proper drawing board so things have definitely moved on yeah. yeah definitely and i feel as though especially with um stuff discovered earlier maybe potentially decades ago um, I mean, is it important that we kind of go back over these things, revisit these sites, redig up these places to using this new technology? Yes, I think it is. But I think whether you're applying technology to it or not, it's always worthwhile getting a second pair of eyes. Yeah. Firstly, on what you're doing in and of the moment, but mm. also later in time, because one can never predict what technologies will be available. And, and you must remember that all archaeological excavation is inherently destructive. Once you've dug it, the evidence yeah. is gone. And if you have made errors of judgment or interpretation, it's very difficult to understand what was there. So sometimes sites do need to be re-excavated because they can be reinterpreted. Now, I don't really dig as such. I have dug, yeah. and I've dug quite a lot over my career, but it's not something that I've done in many, many years. I haven't professionally uh, really done any substantial digging for about 
oh gosh, it must be 11 years now. I've done little bits, but but nothing substantial um, for quite a long period of time. Um, but it but it but it it is important whether or not it's an excavation or whether or not it's a piece of buildings archaeology to go and research these mm. sites again. So to give you a very clear cut example of this from my own career, mm. and I know you wanted to talk about castles yeah. uh, during this session, um, the, the castle right behind me there, uh, that one, Tattershall is the place I did my PhD on. And this had been looked at in the early part of the 20th century in 1912 to 1914. The site was acquired by Lord Curzon of Kedleston. He brought in a conservation architect called William Weir and he let Weir loose as an archeologist. But of course, Weir didn't have the training in, uh, in excavation. So we don't really have any clear records of what he did or what he found. They brought in a consultant uh, historian from the University of Leeds called uh, Alexander Thompson. And he looked at the standing architecture, but Thompson was one of the early castle specialists. He was really in the vanguard and they thought about castles in different ways at the mm. time. And they made conclusions that we probably wouldn't make now. Now skip forward. Uh, just over uh, uh, a century later, and I turn up on the site, and I'm given four years or so to, to look at this, of course I came to different conclusions. Yeah. They all thought that this was a castle of primarily the late 1430s into the 1440s. We've been able to prove using technology, including dendrochronology, that actually the genesis of this site was probably somewhere in the back end of the 1420s. Now that doesn't sound like very much, However, you have to realise that it used to be thought that Tattershall Castle, standing in Lincolnshire, was a building which had taken its influence from Eton College, which was being built in the 1440s for Henry VI. Now, it actually turns out it's the other way round. So Eton College is based on Tattershall because Tattershall is 15 or 20 years earlier. So... By coming back and looking at a site again that everybody thought they knew everything about because yeah. of what had happened in the 1910s, by looking at it again, using archaeology, using technology, we were able to completely turn the story around and show that actually this wasn't an aristocrat, Ralph Lord Cromwell, looking for his architectural signals from the monarchy. It's actually the other way around. The monarch was looking to the aristocrat which is quite an unusual way of, of mm. doing things. But in that situation, it's all wrapped up with the biography of Henry VI, who was, of course, came to the throne at age only nine months. So while Cromwell was being a, a wild young man and, and fighting in France, this was a, a kid who was growing up. So architecture kind of, the, the patrons had mm. to find their own way without the monarchy for quite a long while. And then when Henry becomes old enough to start patronising, he looks at what everybody's been building. But that story has only literally just come out by looking at a site again. That's incredible. And I I want to move on just bef as a kind of transition to castles. Now, I understand that in the early 2000s, you uh, briefly retrained as a conservation stonemason. Mm -hmm. I mean... As much as kind of technology has progressed and it's incredibly important, I mean, did this experience of kind of a very traditional, um, I guess, craftsmanship influence how you now look at castles? Yeah, inherently so, because um, 
There are a few other archaeologists out there who have trained as mm. stonemasons as well. Um, so there's Alex Woodcock, for example, who is a, a leading expert on sculpted gargoyles and grotesques. That's mm. his thing. He's written several books on the subject, but he is an archaeologist in training. It's just that he works in conservation now. And there's one or two others, and we've done it in various permutations, but there aren't that very many um, uh, archaeologists who have a practical understanding of what they're studying mm. um, i'm not trying to blow my own trumpet there it's just <laughs> a bald fact that there aren't very yeah. many of us uh, a, a great friend of mine uh, and a former colleague um who i i i, I enjoy his company very much is damien goodburn mm. and he it's very much like me he trained as a, a carpenter but in traditional techniques so i do stone he does carpentry and mm. and, and he looks at um uh, the, the structure and the history of carpentry and teases out information that would blow your mind. Uh, I loved working with Damien. So working on sites, knowing how buildings go together can really revolutionise your understanding of them. Previously, where I would be looking at things in quite an existential fashion, suddenly you're, you're homing and you can see them in a very practical, in a very um, measured fashion that maybe you wouldn't, I wouldn't have noticed from my original archaeological training and I suppose to give you an example of this um, I, I have a history of uh, uh, involvement in a site just outside Nottingham called Strelly Hall which is a uh, it, it's, it's actually an 18th century country house but underneath it is a, a small medieval castle mm. and the basement of, of, of two of the towers of this castle survive and I was able to look at the direction of the um uh, the stonemason's chisel marks where the basement is cut through natural bedrock mm. and I was actually able to work out that there was two different masons working in this space and mm. one was left-handed and one was right-handed um, so it's just I mean it's such <laughs> fabulously minute detail like that mm. but you know I wouldn't have spotted that prior mm. to my training as a mason it, it really brought things on the interesting thing again touching on technology which I know you're quite keen on um, I trained in a very traditional fashion as a stonemason. Um, we were still working with hand tools, you know, a, mm. a mallet and a chisel and, 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 and the like. And a medieval mason could quite easily have walked into our workshop at a place called Newstead Abbey, which is up in Sherwood Forest. And that mason could have picked up our tools and knew what they got. The only slight change was that the, the heads of our mallets were made of nylon, whereas yeah. uh, a medieval mason would probably have been made of a, a, a fruit wood, for example. Mm. But otherwise, I mean, we did have fruit wood added mallets as well, but otherwise he would have known what was going on. Yeah. Uh, he might have gone, oh, I like these, uh, these, these chisel tips because they were made of tungsten rather than steel. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it looks exactly like. Um, now, when I went to Weymouth College on block release to do the formal qualifications for my apprenticeship, and I met lots of other stonemasons down there who were a bit younger than me, who were working for bigger firms, and they were all working in a way that was completely alien. They were all on uh, airline tools, so they had the chisel, but it was attached to a great big airline, which was... Oh creating the the, the, the the instead of having the, the mallet it was creating that pneumatically mm. uh, and they were doing a lot of their profiling on diamond wires and they had uh, computerized saws and all this kind of crazy technology that i could only ever dream of so again that is a discipline which has moved on as well but yeah. I, I i lecture quite quite widely on the history of stonemasonry yeah. and, the, and the archaeology of stonemasonry as well so it's something i feel really comfortable with yeah um, uh, and, and it's certainly 
it's certainly given me an insight uh, within castle studies, which perhaps few other uh, uh, archaeologists have. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's incredible. Just this kind of, I see it a lot within archaeology, this fusion of kind of traditional, um, I guess, craftsmanship and kind of this new age of technology, which is fantastic. Um, but nevertheless, let's move on to castles. Um, so a lot of people typically think um, because of media, and I know that um, kind of the, the war especially, uh, influenced how people view kind of castles and everything um, as being typically military functions. It's for defense, it's for war. Um, but I know that in the last few decades, especially this begin, this has begun to change. So could you talk a bit more about this? Yeah. I, first thing I would say is that hands open here, castles mm. can and have been used as fortified military defensive installations we can't get away from that yeah. um but it must be um it must be stated that quite often that fortified element has been wildly overstated in terms of the importance of castles in the medieval period mm. that the way that these buildings are often presented on site or in guidebooks or in documentaries is that that is their primary function. And for many people, that is their only function. Now, we can't get away from the fact that they were used in warfare. And there's been some brilliant books written recently, particularly by people like Dan Spencer, who wrote a great book uh, about the castle at war and another one uh, about castles and their usage during the Wars of the Roses. These were buildings which were used in warfare, but there's so much more two castles than simply warfare. Um, I suppose we need to backtrack a little bit to explain where we've come from and how this story became so important. Castle studies was quite late mm. to the party. So within architectural history, initially folk were interested primarily in churches, cathedrals, monasteries. That was the thing that drove most interest in the, I suppose, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. Towards the end of the 19th century, though, castle studies starts to get a look in and we start to see the first books being written by mm. people like uh, uh, G.T. Clarke in this country and slightly preceding him, Eugene Violet Le Duc in France. So they're starting to look at castle studies. Mm. Um, they're coming out of the age of empire. Uh, whether it be French specialists or German specialists or, or British specialists, they're all in, involved in this world that is caught up with empire, whether it's the British Empire or the emerging Germanic Empire, whatever it is. We're seeing this late 19th century, early 20th century world, which is wrapped up in empire and the idea of the bureaucratic running of an empire and the need for uh, a military backing mm. we're also seeing a lot of war at that period in time in this country or this this state that's initially the boer war the first world war the second world war and a lot of the people who are involved in early castle specialists have either seen active military service themselves or have just lived in that world talking to lots of soldiers mm. uh, living through a world war and as a result there's a very militaristic uh, imperial view of the world so if they see something with big thick stone walls and towers well it must be a fort because mm. we've seen forts in the the age of empire and we know what they're for 
So therefore, these medieval buildings must be the same. But Mm. they're not. Crucially speaking, they're not. And it took a long while for people to sort of wake up and realise that there's more to a medieval castle. But they're actually, to my mind, the most complex structures built during the medieval period. There's, There's so many functions to them. But by that point in time, we're looking at the very late 70s, 80s and early 90s, by the time these serious questions get asked and and the subject starts to move on by that point all of these early castle specialist work uh, has been sort of soaked up there's been popular books written there's been lots of hollywood films there's been tv dramas there's been popular documentaries and people have got the message the general public has got the message that these are fortified buildings Mm. so that when the question starts to be asked is this true you've got decades if yeah. not a century's worth of, of scholarship, which is essentially missing the point mm. that castles are the most complex uh, buildings going and that they're not just there as forts. They're partly fortified, but they're used as places of, of, of justice, the courts. Um, they're used as um, theatrical backdrops for ceremonial pageants. Uh, they're used for feasting and banqueting. Um, they are used as art galleries. They're, they're, they have a religious aspect to them as well. Many of them have churches or collegiate churches or even monasteries attached mm. to them. So there's so much more going on with these spaces. Um, and, and in reality, what's going on is that these are buildings which are intended to be impressive, lavish displays of your power and wealth and status in society. And that's the true function of the castle, to be an expression of your social position Um, and everything else fits in with that and of course militarism and fortification is part of your expression Mm. of um uh, of power and might but that is has become or was the uh, the the thing that was looked at almost to the exclusivity of everything else that goes on in the castle Mm. They're, they're essentially really fancy domestic palaces uh, even at the lowest level, they're still trying to build to show off as much as they can. Yeah. And there are real differences in the style of castles, uh, according to your wealth, but also mm. across time as well. Tremendously complicated buildings. That's the kind of the story that's that's emerged yeah. from the last 40 years of scholarship. Yeah. And that's um, it's really fascinating, the idea of kind of status and symbolism, because and you say that just at the end about kind of even the like the lower people how it's kind of a symbol of wealth and everything what type of person could own a castle um because i mean i'm here in norwich and we have um the main castle that was built um i believe by henry ii but i understand that obviously not all castles were royal households so norwich is a, is a good example of this because it is a royal castle it's founded yeah. initially under, under under william the conqueror right. it's a really early one there's, it's mucked around with over time and yeah. obviously there's a lot that's that's no longer present because of urban encroachment and this used to be thought as as being the the genesis of castles the normans yeah. come over 1066 and all that and that's when we start to see castles but the more people have actually looked at these sites, the more they've realised that actually there's quite a lot of what we could term castles in the Anglo-Scandinavian period. Um, so a lot of people think about castles as being built for kings. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the Anglo-Scandinavian period, in, in the, in the well, really the, the, the 9th, 10th and 11th centuries, you're seeing 
enclosed private residences, which mm. have got quite impressive gatehouses and big banks and ditches and a, a hall and maybe a chapel and, the, and, and stables and the like in, internally. And to all intents and purposes, that is a castle. Mm. Uh, and there's lots of people who are building these. They tend to be of the sort of Thanely rank or yeah. um, uh, earls or that kind of thing. They tend to be for, you know, somebody who's impressive. And after the Norman Conquest, that pattern more or less continues. Anybody who can afford to build a castle builds one because it establishes your serious credentials in society. You're a man who's arrived or indeed a woman who's arrived. We don't have that many castles that are built for women, but they, okay. they do exist. And we certainly have a number of castellans, people who look after castles and that are in charge of them as, as women. That's quite common. However, it's mainly a boy's macho environment. Most medieval households are exclusively male or almost exclusively male. Um, and we're seeing people from not quite all sectors of society, but yes, you're seeing your kings, your dukes, your earls, your major churchmen, archbishops, bishops, abbots even. But also there is another rank of castle builders as well. And it's your knights, yeah. uh, members of the gentry, well-to-do merchants can build castles, even lower-ranking churchmen, mm. such as uh, canons or, 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 or pre what are called prebends, ministers, uh, are building them as well. So it, it's just simply a way of, of, of expressing the fact that you've arrived in society, mm. you've got enough cash to build one of these things, and they often are built as part of your leg up in society. So yeah. it's part of the, um, the display. You know, I, I'm, I'm here, I'm the big man. And you build probably to just slightly further up than you can afford. Um, and and you probably ruin yourself financially doing it. <laughs> but uh, a, 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 lot, a lot of these are, are, are much smaller sites than people would necessarily imagine. Yeah. It's not all Kenilworth. It's not all Warwick. It's not all Dover. Mm. We do have our smaller sites like Ballersley Clinton or yeah. Strelly Hall or, or Annersley Castle, quite local to me. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting especially when you look at the evolution of castles from the Mott and bailey to these kind of stone fortresses like um carnarvon and all these other various mm. sites i mean what spurred on this evolution how did we go from these wooden towers mm. to these vast kind of really dominant features in the landscape mm. well i would say one thing that stone castles have been there from the inception okay, of castle yeah. building so in the anglo-scandinavian period we have a fair amount of evidence for stone towers for example okay. yeah. um they do they do exist michael shapland uh who who is um uh, based at um uh archaeology southeast has, has written a brilliant um uh, phd in a book and a number of papers on saxon castle towers uh, and, and looked at all sorts of sites and, and the emergence of the tower as the dominant um feature of a castle you know the architectural focus and that again carries on through so by the time of the norman conquest again we're seeing these great stone towers at places like uh the tower of london colchester norwich uh, but also um at, at a baronial level at places like chepstow and probably at uh Lund and, and other sites as well they, they are building in stone but again it's it's, a, it's all about what you can afford what's available yeah. locally um but yes you, you are quite right in saying that at the early period a lot of these castles are earth and timber but that doesn't mean that they're not complex yeah. because when these sites have been excavated and a reasonable number have um, there's a great book on timber castles by um uh, barker and Hyam, which came out gosh 32 years ago now but it 
it, it drew upon lots of data of excavated sites at places like Hendommen um, uh, near Montgomery and also places like Stafford Castle. And it showed that these were densely clustered village-like groupings of, yeah. of very complex um, uh, enclosures where it wasn't just a tower on the Mott, which is the, the great big mound, mm. and, and a palisade, and that's it. They're actually, they've got all sorts of structures within. You know, not only have you got the higher status stuff like your hall, your residential solar um, range, uh, maybe a chapel, but also there's all the stuff, the service mm. buildings that are so important to the running of a castle. Stables, granaries, barns, uh, animal sheds, wagon sheds, you know, lodgings for your retainers. And they're densely packed, particularly places like Stafford, densely, densely packed. So there is a complexity that's always been there. And as these lords rise up in society, they're all jockeying and vying for power. And you've got to have the latest technologies. And architectural thinking changes across the medieval period. I, I, I like to, to, to get um, uh, people thinking when I, when I talk about the changes in castle design. It's think what your modern house looks like. If you go to a modern housing estate, go and look at one of those houses there. If you don't live in one, go and look at a modern housing estate and then go and look at uh, a house of the 16th or 17th centuries, timber frame you know maybe thatched roof they look completely different because they are because the world is completely different the 500 years apart now think about the medieval period it's not homogenous things change across both time and space and also societal position as well it's a really complex uh, organism so that the castles of the 11th century look nothing like the castles of the 16th century yeah. because technology moves on because the abilities of stonemasons and also crucially carpenters mm. moves on and as one does something it alters the thinking of their contemporaries and their peers. And so they change as well. And then the next generation wants to get one up on them as well. And yeah. they're, they're, they're adding to older buildings as well, knocking bits down, punching holes through. Tremendously complex archaeologically, these buildings mm. are. So things change because people change. Yeah. And we should never imagine that these are buildings which uh, change organically in and of their own. They change because their functions need to alter as society itself becomes mm. more complex. Yeah, no, definitely. And I wonder as well, connecting back to kind of your stonemasonry, uh, when we see this evolution, do we see an evolution in kind of the stone that's used? Um, and kind of the, the yeah the materials and the way in which castles are built in on a material level yes um when the normans first start building in stone in the tens late 1060s 1070s um quite a lot of those sites in particular the tower of london are built using imported stone from mm. normandy itself from com um and and you can see this uh, uh physically in the in the construction of the tower of london now much of the tower of london has been replaced in in other stones quite a lot of it's in portland stone for example but as we see other towers and other bits of castles going up quite often we can very clearly see that they're using the local stone because you it's expensive moving mm. stone around is so expensive even to this day um and we're seeing stone they're using whatever they can get from the nearest local source. Mm. However, if your nearest local source isn't very good, mm. 
uh, and he's quite crumbly or you can't get big dimensional blocks on it, they might have to look a bit further afield yeah. for the quality bits to do the quality parts, such as windows, doors, string courses, the copings, all that kind of thing. So you might start to see a complexity of petrologies used on these sites. Um, and it's important to understand that, really, because... Mm. Um, you, you, for example, uh, again, using the Tower of London, um, a lot of the Tower of London is built from uh, what's called Kentish ragstone, which is from the Medway area. And it's, it's, it's as hard as bell metal. It's mm. so difficult. Your chisel's bouncing off it. Really difficult to work. And you can't easily carve fine mouldings yeah. on this stuff. So they use the Kentish rag for the, the, the curtain walls or yeah. the, the elevations of buildings. And then when they come to do the finer detailing, they go across the other side of London and they use something called Rygate green sand, which is soft. It's buttery. It doesn't survive very well over time, actually, which has caused all sorts of conservation headaches. But the doors and windows are in a much softer material. And so you can see the technology being used in different ways because the petrologies are different uh, and it's important to understand that mm, no definitely and so we've spoken about kind of i guess the genesis of castles but eventually castles begin to almost die out and become palaces or mm. stately homes i mean what caused the decline of castles and, and this kind of transition well we get a diff we end up with a different class of monument there's there's no way of getting around that the the the, the the Renaissance and and, uh, and post-medieval country house, your your Longleats, your Hardwicks, your Woolertons, your, your Chatsworths, they look very different fundamentally to uh, the medieval castle as we know it. But mm. we have to remember that their functions, their purposes are remarkably similar to the medieval castle. It's mm. still about establishing your position in society, showing off your privilege and your wealth, all of those things. There's still art galleries, there's still theatrical backdrops, there's still fundamentally uh, part of a wider landscape which is managed to express lordship. The country house is doing the things that castles have always done. It's just that there is a linear progression through from the Anglo-Scandinavian period up to the, um, the really impressive uh, neoclassical buildings of the 18th century. They are still fundamentally fulfilling very, very similar um, uh, functions in society. Society's changed, yeah. but there are certain things that society does that don't really change. Mm. It's the reason why we've still got massive skyscrapers, yeah. vanity projects going up on the banks of the, the River Thames, that there are certain people in society that want to use their wealth to patronise uh, extraordinary architecture to, to look at me look at the position that i hold i can do this so it had been couched previously that there was a decline of the castle but castles got more and more militarily complex up to mm. the end of the 13th century and then we see a decline as england becomes safer we see a decline down to the country house and it doesn't really work that way it's mm. it, it, it's much more of a, a linear sequence as technologies alter as society alters that the that the the visuals change but the purposes remain actually remarkably similar throughout so in terms of why things change well it's kind of linking back with what i said before um they're vying and, and jockeying with each other in society and and things organically 
evolve according to the needs of human agency. And one of the things that we see is that households get much more complex over time. So the size of the retinue of a great lord will increase over time. To give you some examples of this, um, by the uh, the 14th century and the, and the 15th century, the monarch is moving around with about seven, eight hundred, maybe up to fifteen hundred people in their retinues. Previously, they might only be moving in the 12th century with maybe 150, 200 people. Yeah. So obviously, those earlier castles are much smaller. Um, they're much less complex, even though there is a complexity to them. Mm. But over time, the sites get bigger. There's more lodging ranges. There's more accommodation, uh, and 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 the I suppose you might say the complexity of social admission to different areas alters as well. So you might start to see castles such as, and again, I'll use the example from my own research of Tattershall, where you've got um, a great hall. All castles pivot around the great hall. It's the, the great centre of a castle where everything yeah. occurs. But at Tattershall, you've also got a lesser hall for the retinue you've got a dining hall for the lord as well so you can see what was previously been just one space is now three that complexity as society becomes much more advanced and that leads to changes in castle design incredible i mean it's absolutely fascinating castles are and the complexities to them and i wish i i mean i wish i could talk to you about them all day if it weren't for the confinements of time um, and so just to kind of finish with, I mean, what piece of advice would you give to someone wanting to get into archaeology? Yes, I often think back to what my uh, tutor said to me. <laughs> <laughs> my tutor when he said, you know, it's a great hobby and a lousy career. <laughs> in order to be uh, 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 an archaeologist, you've, you've, you've got to admit several things. You're never going to get wealthy. You're never yeah. going to have a really extravagant lifestyle. You're never going to own a castle. <laughs> Fortunately, that's never going to happen for you. Um, as long as you're okay for a sort of genteel poverty, then then go for it, you know. But don't expect it's going to be like you know uh, uh, a very wealthy uh, background. And you have to try and consider what you want to do with it. If you just want to go and do a bit of digging and and, and you know have, have a bit of a look, then you know you, you can do that as a hobbyist. That can be done. But if you really, really are sold on the idea of doing this for a living, the, the yeah. fundamental piece of advice for you, um, well, there's a couple of bits, but you've got to be stubborn mm -hmm. um, because it's very difficult to get into as, as a career where you can last. It's quite easy to get into an entry level. You yeah. do your degree, you get a job. But then to progress that job it's quite difficult mm. and i would always say find what you're interested in and you do you so yeah. buildings for me with a niche in castles um you know it could be roman pottery it could be historic carpentry it, yeah. it could be bricks it could be anything whatever it is that you have um got yourself an interest in and make sure that you're the person that people come to for that mm. you know that, that you you found a niche you've got to be stubborn to do that though you've got to take the knockbacks and you've got yeah. to be able to uh um to, to to keep moving and to keep finding new ways and that is really important as well you've sort of got to almost be like water you know yeah you, 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 you see the problem ahead and you flow around it rather than sort of bouncing back off the rocks that's never going to do you any any um any favors at all and my own career has gone in really bizarre twists and turns over the years. Um, I, I do a lot of online lecturing now. If you told me this 
two and a half years ago, I would have, well, how do I do that? <laughs> I'm not sure I know how to do that. I, think, yeah. I, do, I do winter lecture series. I do six or eight oh, talks yeah. in, the, in the winter. And that's a big part of my career. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. speaking often to, you know, three, 400 people at a time. Wow. Um, and, and it's become, a, you know, it's, I've been able to talk about my research to audiences that I never thought I'd be able to reach. Uh, and, and I've, you know, I've, I've come to know some of the most friends, others I feel like we're moving towards friendship, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's become a really important part of it. And, you know, moving with the times has become really important. Just standing up in front of a village hall of 25 people on a Tuesday evening when it's throwing it down outside. I still like doing that. Yeah. I can now do that in a different way and reach much yeah. bigger audiences. So as, as, as things change and have changed over the last 25 years, so have I. And my way of looking at sites has changed as well. And, yeah. and I hope in another 25 years will have continued to change. And a day where I don't learn something mm. um, is a bad day. So always make sure, again, if you're getting into this, just keep the, uh, keep the reading up, you know, keep visiting these sites. It's really important. Even if you don't do it professionally, yeah. Um, I, I, I love doing it in my spare time. You know, it's a busman's holiday for me. But yeah, um, you've got to be stubborn. Brilliant. Yeah. No, thank you so much for that. And um, I mean, is there any uh, social media projects or publications, anything that um, if someone wants to kind of know more about you or mm. is interested in you that I could direct them towards? Mm, sure. Um, I, like every other person under the sun, have my company website. Mm. I run a company called Triskily Heritage. And on there, you can find all sorts of resources about the different projects that I've been involved in, whether it be castles or vernacular architecture or ecclesiastical stuff, Mm. uh, country houses and the like. Um, I also keep a blog, uh, the medieval myth busting blog, where I sort of take on commonly told stories about Mm. sites and try and deconstruct them and, and explain what's really going on. Castles is a big part of that. Um, for example, uh, I've, I've looked at many castle subjects on there. Currently writing a book on the subject too, but we'll, we'll see when that comes out. Um, I'm, I'm quite often involved in, in bits of outreach, so I, I lecture quite widely across the country. So you know, can quite often be found standing up in a hall near you. Um, and I'm about to shoot another series of, uh, or another program in the next series of the Great British Dig as well, oh, wow. which is a, a wonderful uh, series mm. where um, Hugh Dennis and a team of crack experts <laughs> dig up people's back gardens and go looking for all sorts of uh, interesting and extraordinary things. I've done a couple of programs with them before and we're about to film another one. So keep your eyes out for that too. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much for coming on. And, and I've absolutely enjoyed it it's been absolutely fascinating um and to anyone watching thank you ever so much for watching and um we've got many other interviews coming and some already posted so do have a look at those but other than that thank you very much and have a good week thanks for having me on board and uh, good luck with the podcast i hope it thrives for you thank you so much thank you